0: This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the
1: most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Every person has a time bank. In every day, 86,400 seconds are deposited into that time bank. No one will tell you how to use that time, and time misspent won't be refunded at some point, whether it's five days, five years, 50 years, some point down the road, you're going to go to that time bank and you're going to find that it's empty. And it's at this point, you'll know the answer to this question. Did I use my time well? That was
0: Jerry Kopak, today's guest who spent 10 years in corporate America before founding a hospice. And today he shares some of the biggest lessons he learned interacting with people who were at the end of their life. So he has some Unique perspectives on that question we should all consider, which is Am I using my time well? He also shares how a two month bike tour turned into nearly two years, and he has since bike packed over 10,000 miles in 18 countries. So, we get some advice on bike touring and much more happening in today's conversation. Plus, I'm going to share a small bike hack to consider for your next trip an uncomfortable but important challenge that takes just under a minute to complete and might just change your life. And a shout out to a listener here in this community whose commitment to travel is finally paying off. It's all happening right now in today's show. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your
1: wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore.
0: Hey there, it's Jason with Zerototravel.com. travelcom Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And our guest today, Jerry Kopack, has certainly found a way to Build his life with travel. He shares his journey. And you can check him out if you're curious at jerrykopeck.com. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. And one of the questions on his homepage there is, if you were given a gift of time, how would you use it? Of course, we're all given the gift of time. And perhaps this episode is a chance to reflect on how we're using it, how much we might have left. More about that on the back end. If you stick around after the interview, I'll share that challenge. It's going to help you do that. And a little shout-out to somebody in the community. Jerry's book, by the way, The World Spins By, A Gift of Time, Love, and the Long Bike Ride Back to Myself. Of course, using travel or a long journey to discover or rediscover what's already there, a theme that is always coming up in this show. And I think travel can't help itself but to transform us in some ways. Jerry shares his story now. Please enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side, my friend. (laughs) ¶¶ Jerry Kopach. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend.
1: Are we, uh, are we on? Because uh, this is exciting. I've been listening to your show a lot recently. And I got to say, you have some really high achieving, inspirational people on here. So I'm flattered to be part of this.
0: Well, I mean, you're one of them. You're here. I appreciated the email you sent out. And obviously, a lot to talk about here today. Uh, you just got back from a trip, didn't you?
1: Indeed. Yeah, I just got back from a a month long trip in India. And I'd been there six years ago, but I'd been there solo. And this had been the first trip i had taken with a partner. And I got to tell you the 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 sure best way to test out a relationship, even a newest relationship, we had been together about a year is to go bike traveling in India. That will uh, that will test (laughs) what you guys are made of. And so really, really good experience for both of us, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, maybe we should drag her on to just hear if that's that's the case. <laughs> what did you guys learn about each other on this trip?
1: Uh, so, being used to traveling by myself, I know what I'm capable of. I know when I need to eat. I know when I'm tired. I know when I need to stop for the day. But now, all of a sudden, I had this other person that I have to be aware of of, of her needs. And that was different for me. And so she is a, an incredibly gritty, resilient, and competitive person. Probably more so than I am. But I have to realize that maybe she has different eating schedules than me. That maybe she's not wanting to pedal as long in the day as I am. And so it's just how do we communicate? How do we resolve conflict? Or you know, this this concept of being hangry or something like that. And so you you, you learn a lot about someone in how they resolve these kind of situations.
0: No, I don't know anything about being hangry. I'm raising my hand here. We've all been, I think we've all been hangry, or and around hangry people. It's it's. <laughs> I mean, it's a concept, but it's it's true. I mean, some something happens, and you can like you can just snap, man. A
1: switch just <laughs> flips, and I'm not going to say she had those issues because she's again, she's the the most competitive, most gritty person that I've ever met, and so she was right with me, pedal for pedal. But it was just learning how things go. And I guess for the most part, I took for granted that I had been to India before. I'd been there a couple of times. I used to be kind of an amateur bike racer, like not for money, but just for fun. And she didn't, hadn't had those experiences. And so I had had these, the opportunity to figure all this stuff out way before her. So I took for granted that what I was doing felt easy is if anything in India is easy. But for me, it felt relatively so easy. And for her, it was all completely brand new.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like you'd been through through the mill, as they say, yeah. and she was just going through it for the first time. Well, I mean, there's biking and then there's biking in India, probably. Exactly. Right? Like how If you can just describe the experience of riding a bicycle through India, how would you describe it?
1: So fortunately, and I knew enough to not be anywhere near the south where the population density is is quite suffocating. So I wasn't in Mumbai or Delhi or Kolkata, those places. So I was in the north near the Pakistan border in the Kashmir region. So in the Himalayas, so population is a lot less. But still, there's this there's this sort of ingrained hierarchy that you have to learn. And bicycles are absolutely at the bottom of it. So there's while there might be rules, there might be standards no one follows them so people driving in cars buses military vehicles what they do is they're they're, they start driving around and all they do is they they honk and let you know that they're coming It's, it's not a an aggressive honk to say hey get out of the way it's just hey i'm coming notice me and so they would pass myself my partner going up hills around blind corners even if there's someone coming head on the other way. And it's, it's basically it's single lane traffic and they just honk and expect you to respond appropriately. And again, bicycles are at the bottom of the food chain. So we're constantly just diving out of the way. And then you finally realize like, okay, they're not trying to hit us. They're just coming. And once you realize that, it becomes somewhat less chaotic, although it never really gets comfortable.
0: No, I mean, it's got to be stressful because you're one sometimes inches away from... I mean, these things happen, right? I don't know what the statistics are for people dying on bikes, but uh, unfortunately, I had a wonderful couple on the podcast some years ago. They were a married couple. They rode a tandem bike from Norway to South Africa. That was their honeymoon. I was like, what a great way to get to know each other. Speaking of kind of going on a tandem bike, nonetheless.
1: Right. You can't get away, right?
0: No. Yeah. <laughs> and then they decided to do another trip again years later and she she got hit by a car and and died. Oh. Yeah. Oh. It was a terrible tragedy and that happened in Africa and you know there's a real danger to riding a bike there is on the side of a busy road in a place where bikes aren't necessarily meant to I mean you you live in Colorado, right? I mean, I spend a lot Correct. of time in, in Boulder. You know, there's the bike lanes and like little bike highways and all the yeah, nice, it's nice very things. Friendly. And everybody's really respectful and aware of the bikers. And then there's the rest of the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. In India is, you know, I'll, I'll say this with, the, with a caveat that while the traffic is this sort of beautiful orchestra of chaotic uh chaotic workings, people there are still some of the kindest, most generous, most thoughtful people that I've met any place in the world. And I've I've been in 30 countries and, and traveled by bike through 18 countries. And the experiences I've had in India are seriously some of the most warming and heartfelt and inspirational memories that I have. So I, I won't knock India. Can you talk about some of those? Uh, some of the...
0: Sort of on the ground experiences to bring, I guess, the journey to life a bit.
1: Yeah. So I don't know how far you want me to to go back, as far as what launched me on this path. But I I've been.
0: I mean, we're going to get it. Well, I have some questions about that, but I'm I'm kind of curious about just this most recent one because it's so fresh and it's not in your book, which we'll talk about. But
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's not. Uh, So talking about this this most recent trip. Uh, we had planned, my partner and I, to to take a trip and we were going to go to to Spain because she was working full time and I was in between jobs. And so we were going to go for two weeks because that seemed like the standard amount of allotted time that someone can get off from their from their job. And so we were going to go to Spain. We both had friends from the U.S. who had met Spaniards and had moved to Malaga. And so it made sense to just go visit both of our two friends. And then my partner, her name is Christy. She was kind of in this place where she wasn't really enjoying her work. And she came to me one day after we had been planning to go to Spain and we had already booked our tickets and we were maybe a week or so from getting on the plane. And she said, I think I'm going to quit my job. I'm not really happy. And then this little light went off in my head. It's like, well, if you're going to quit your job and we're going to have more time, then we should go big. What does that look like? Like it looks like India. And so that kind of was completely out in left field and she wasn't ready for that. Because if if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, Spain is in Europe, as we all know, and it's just it's more structured. It's 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 an easier place to go visit than say the the aforementioned chaos of India. And so we had to talk about that and get her comfortable with this this whole new change that she wasn't prepared for. And so we ended up going to India and we had planned this route that I had been on a similar path six years prior on my solo journey. And then the, once we got on the ground, we started talking to people and the route that I had planned, someone said, well, you should do this instead because of the winter. And we had gotten there in October. And so we've been traveling over, we would be traveling over a series of 15, 16, 17,000 foot mountain passes. So 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 meters and at this time in october winter was was real and they're at the point of they're going to start closing mountain passes and once these passes close they're done for the season until probably april or may so we ended up changing some some of our plan and we walked into we were in this this city called leh which is up in the, the district of ladakh in the jammu and kashmir region and we talked to this this tour guide just to get a feel for different routes And he was telling us this, this route that we should take. And Christy had told him that the day before she had done this, this ride on her birthday. And it was up to this, uh, this mountain pass called Kardung La, which at the time was the highest motorable pass in the world, 18,000 feet and change. And his eyes got really big. And he says, wow, you are, you are very qualified. And so she thought, wow, this is great. I can do this. And then we start talking more about the things that i had done and he's and i said, well i've done that as well 6 years ago and i've also from here gone into southern part of india and then into nepal and then china and he looked at her with a kind of a smile on his face and he says you are very qualified but he he is more qualified so it was it wasn't like a uh, a competition thing it was just a, it was kind of a funny little chuckle that we sort of joke about now
0: <laughs> well there are a lot of ways to take a bike trip, right? I mean, you can have the, the biking experience where let's say like one of the ones on my bucket list is the French canals and then, you know, it's all flat and then you can kind of go along and maybe stop and have some wine and chill out, you know? And that then there's climbing nice. 17,000 foot mountain passes with your bike, which sounds like <laughs> a lot of work. I mean, yeah. yeah, I guess just on bike touring, you know, do you think anybody can
1: can do it? Ah, oh, it's a great question. Yeah, so... I grew up with bikes. Bikes, as far back as I can remember, bikes have always been a part of my life. And there's something just about the bikes that provide this sense of, of freedom and escapism that have always been so so poignant in my life. And to your question is, can anyone do it? Yeah, I think you don't need to have an expensive bike. The bike that you have is the bike that you have, and it works great. The, some, some real basic understanding of bike knowledge Helps as far as how to change a flat tire, the things that go wrong the most. Bikes overall don't catastrophically fail. The thing that happens most is a flat tire. If you can change a flat tire, you're probably good to go. And I would say if you're going to embark on a tour like this, maybe start somewhere near your house where it's familiar. Just go and ride your bike and, and sleep someplace overnight. And so I've had friends do what's called a credit card trip. And they'll basically bring either a, like a small backpack with some basic clothes, and they'll just ride someplace, go stay overnight in a in the hotel, get up the next morning, and either ride back home or continue to the next city and That's how a lot of my trips started. It wasn't until a couple of years after I started bike touring that I became more self sufficient started carrying a sleeping bag and a tent and a camp stove and There's something about that that initially is is quite daunting because you're out there on your own. But my first trip was actually in Spain in 2005. And even as remote as I was, there there's people, there's hotels, there's there's hospitals, there's people who who have good intentions who can help you. So if you can get past sort of like the the mental limitations of getting out there by yourself, one pedal stroke at a time will, will get you there.
0: Did you have a mongoose when you were
1: growing up? That's a good question. <laughs> I did have one of those. This because I dreamed about a
0: mongoose, and then I got a mongoose one one
1: year. My uh, and I know
0: you. I was more of a to, skater, so I wasn't. I didn't have the pegs or anything like that.
1: So <laughs> yeah. So my, my first uh, tour bike was this bike that I bought used from the, the Boulder Sports Recycler in Boulder, Colorado. I think I paid forty five dollars for it. It was a steel frame Peugeot from France, mm-hmm. and it worked. Nice. And it was great. So,
0: well, I mean, on that note, the, the ability to buy a bike, of course, you could land somewhere and buy a bike. You can ship your bike. It sounds like for this trip, it was pretty technical, but what would be your advice for somebody, you know, knowing, I know you've biked in 18 countries, you said shipping your bike or bringing it with you versus buying one on the ground, let's say.
1: Yeah. For me, I like to know my equipment and while it's not cheap to take your bicycle on a plane, it costs probably an extra hundred dollars each way, which isn't great. But you have your bike, and so for two hundred dollars round trip, you have the bicycle that you know that you know is going to be there for you. Instead of trying to source something locally, and honestly, if you're going to a place that isn't super bicycle intensive like India, the uh, the ability to find a, a quality bike sometimes isn't there. And so, I just I'd I like to know. The bike that i have i know that it's battle tested i know that it's been freshly tuned as opposed to trying to buy something from someone which a lot of times isn't that um isn't that predictable like you may not be able to find a bike shop so i had a a few bicycle mechanical issues when i was in india most recently and i went to bike shops and had a hard time sourcing parts so i was i was happy that i had my own bike and i was eventually able to work it out but kind of a distraction or kind of a diversion from your question, the answer is, yeah, I definitely would bring my own bike.
0: I guess after doing all the traveling you've done, we're going to get to the genesis of some of that, but it seems like you've by now shed the nickname of Culture Boy. Is that, is
1: that the... <laughs> <laughs> wow. You, uh, you've been thumbing through my book. That's, uh, wow. I didn't know you're going to bring that up. Thank you. That's, uh, that, that's pretty funny. Uh, I have shed that nickname, although... My, Talk uh, about my how you got that ho-
0: nickname, because it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wow, that nice pull. So I had I never been out of the country before. I had been living in the United States, and I had been in exactly probably two or three states. So I grew up in rural Michigan with my dad, went to college in Boulder, Colorado. My parents had divorced. My mom moved to Colorado. My dad stayed in Michigan. And I'd been in really probably two or three states at that time. And that was kind of the extent of my own myopic view of the world, and so a friend of mine who I went to college with, her name was Heidi. She had had an opportunity, and she moved to to Germany. And she said, "You should come visit me." I'm like, "Okay, this sounds like a like a pretty interesting idea." And so, naturally curious, how old were I you at the time then? Ah, uh, it was right after college. I mean, it was okay. a couple yeah. of years, like 21 24, yeah. no, oh, okay. twenty one or no, okay, yeah, twenty four. A couple of years. Like I had been working a little bit. And so I went to to Germany to visit her for a couple of weeks, and so I, I I get to to her flat in in Berlin, and for whatever reason I chose the terminology. Everything is weird, and so her flat was weird. the the dual flushing toilets at the time was weird. the the grocery stores, the coffee shops. I mean, everything that I now know is not weird. I just termed it as weird. And finally, she just got sick of hearing me. And I wasn't. I wasn't bashing Berlin. I just. It just felt different to me, yeah. and said she said it's well, it not. Diff- weird. It was different, right? <laughs> it, it is. But you know, if if you've been to the difference between, like, say, Germany, and and the United States, isn't that much different? As opposed to say, going from India to the United States, like that's that's significantly, but. The, the the norms, the cultures, whatever between Europe and the United States really aren't that different. I mean, there's much longer history there, but as far as how they do things, where they drive on the side of the road, like it's pretty much the same. But for whatever reason, I just said, like, that's so weird. And finally she just got sick of it and says, It's not weird, culture boy. It's just that you've never left the country. So things are just different to you. And that name has stuck for twenty years and even though she has now moved back and she's living in New York, and I'm living in Colorado, every time she talks, she still will call me "culture boy" with kind of like a little jab and, and in jest there. So it's a uh, I have shed it because again I've I've traveled a bit more, but it definitely is one of those things that wow, how naive was I at the time? But we all start like
0: that. I mean, that's what's so eye opening about traveling internationally is everything's different, and it's just uh pretty incredible to see how people live and. It just has such an impact. It always does, but even more early on when it's re- pretty fresh, I think, and you just start to realize, "Oh, not everybody, yeah, does things the same. Or I, I love to read the articles where people are talking about like the Europeans come to the US. and they talk about all the weird things they find in the U.S. Like there, this is weird experiences like the well for example like the like why do all the public toilets in the u.s have like giant gaps in the door so everybody can see in
1: they're like this (laughs) is weird i've heard that right
0: yeah that is weird it's weird
1: at at the bottom (laughs) of the door right
0: bottom top sides you know (laughs) i mean here usually you shut the door and you have a door that shuts all the way sure weird right
1: why is there a gap at the bottom? We're the that? weird ones, man. <laughs> God, what a great uh, perspective shift! You're right. It is. It is us.
0: Yeah. So there's a culture boy running around America right now, saying the same things in reverse. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like you uh, you actually took the name and, and really became culture boy, traveling around and soaking up all these cultures. Is there a particular culture you identify with outside of your home country?
1: So I've, I've been, I spent a lot of time in Asia, whether it's Nepal, India, Thailand, China, I've spent time in, in Europe and I, I've always thought that if I was going to live someplace outside the U S I really enjoyed my time in Europe. So I've been to France and I've been to Switzerland and I, I just love sort of the, uh, the, the orderly, the orderliness, if that's a word of, a. Uh, of 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 european society the western european the places i'd visited i like think the public transportation is fantastic the healthcare is wonderful it just seems like they have it figured out and i think you're you know you're living in uh, in europe now so but you had lived in the us as well so do well, I you used to live a, in Colorado. I mean, what's the vibe yeah. in
0: Colorado right now? Just curious, selfish question here, I guess. But
1: What's the vibe in Colorado? Um, it's good, right? So COVID has, has sort of receded. It's, uh, it's loosened its grip on the United States and Colorado. So I live in Breckenridge, which is definitely a, a touristy uh, place in, in the mountains in, in Colorado. And yeah, we're, we're back to normal. People are happy. People are getting out there, living life, getting, playing in the, in the mountains, Going skiing, riding their bikes, all the things that we used to do prior to the shutdown. So I think things are good here. But if I ever did choose to live someplace else, Europe would be high on my list. As far as what country, I don't know. I haven't spent enough time in any one country to say, wow, this is it.
0: Mm. I love me some Broken Compass uh, brewery over in Ridge, though. I am impressed. uh, one of my faves. Well, I mean, I I you know, I lived in Colorado. I got I got around a little bit.
1: Yeah, but that's that's a small little micro brew in Breckenridge, just down the street from me. We'll
0: get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by US Bank. Recently I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway. And enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. The kind of journey to travel, I mean, you mentioned early on the culture boy thing with Heidi and all that, but it sounds like that kind of opened your eyes to international travel in some ways. Uh, And then somehow, in your words, you said you spent 10 soulless career years in a career in corporate America. And then that there was a big transition after that, and I definitely want to get in into that and how that's sort of developed your philosophy for life now and time and all that stuff. But you know, talk about the corporate America thing. Was that just uh, did you get on that path because that was sort of the expectation? And it's just kind of had the had the horse blinders on, like this is what you do and you just do it, or was it pretty conscious? Or you know, and this is not a diss to anybody working in corporate America. Like it's just that it's not for everybody, and it sounds like it wasn't for you i mean you said soulless <laughs> career in corporate america so that's pretty extreme soulless is a it's a strong word is that the word. most extreme adjective you can use yeah right there must have been some soul there
1: uh, honestly no <laughs> and soulless is a strong word i agree but really i was just i was just a guy who who thought he had it all figured out i was following sort of this this laminated roadmap to, to what I thought was happiness and success handed to me a graduation from college. You know? So I, I went to college. I got a good job. I got the education. I bought the house, met the girl, and I thought everything was just as it was supposed to be. And my first job out of college was for the, for the Federal Reserve, <laughs> which being a finance major, the Federal Reserve is the highest bank in the land. And I, I got the job that I wanted and I thought this is how it's supposed to be, and honestly, after a year, it was it wasn't quite brain damage, but it was some pretty uninspiring and yeah even some soulless work and I remember having my my one year um, sort of anniversary review schedule with my manager, and then those you you talk about things you've accomplished throughout the year, but mostly forward looking what do you hope to accomplish, what are your goals for the coming year. And I remember just being so stressed out, wondering what am I going to say to this guy as far as what my plans are? Because I didn't have like, plans. I don't want to be here. <laughs> it was. And so it's like I'm getting ready to, to say I'm breaking up with you. And before I could even say what my plans were, which would have been totally fabricated because I didn't know what I, my goals were just other than I didn't want to be here. Before I could say that, he's like, let me stop you right there. We don't think this is the right fit for you and i was like what really and then my mind like like, Wait, you're, like you're breaking up with me cuz i i was going to break up with you and and so it was weird to be on the receiving end of that but at the same time like it was a gift like it was just the wrong fit and, and people have worked in banking or, or corporate america or the federal reserve even and have had long enjoyable careers but for me working with interest rates and monetary policy and economics, it just, uh, it was Where were you?
0: Where was this in Colorado? Yeah, it was in Denver. It was in Denver. Yeah. Okay.
1: And it just, it wasn't it. And so I kind of, from there bounced around to a couple more just corporate cubicle jobs that, yeah, they paid a little bit more money, had a little more responsibility, helped me sort of propel myself down the, uh, the career path a little bit deeper, but it, it didn't matter. No matter what I was doing, whether I was working in banking or whether I was working in telecom, like, whatever I did during the day didn't have an impact on people's lives. So it wasn't, it didn't have that sort of feel good, inspirational work. So yeah, I had an opportunity to transition.
0: That was a value that you had pondered quite a bit this idea of making an impact in a different way, let's say. Yeah. And that's
1: kind of goes back to that sort of soulless. And, And again, it's a strong word, but soulless for me just meant that everything that I was doing or nothing that I was doing really, really mattered to anyone in the day. So if I was working in telecom and we installed new fiber optic cable to the new Hilton hotel in downtown Denver, like who cares? Like, how, how is that making an impact in someone's life? Like, yeah, sure. Then people have internet in their hotel room when they're traveling, but does it really make their lives better? Is it really at this big impact in their lives? And honestly, no. So that's where I kind of lost the, the purpose and the momentum.
0: Did you ever consciously sort of explore or even write down your purpose? If, if purpose was such a big thing for you, was that a conscious exploration
1: no, that's a great question. I feel like you've been talking to my partner, Christy, because that's a question that she would have asked me. It's a question that she still asks me even today. I didn't. I was just kind of sort of fumbling through the world thinking that, okay, this is, this is the, the playbook. This is what you do. You, you get this job and you, just, you, you work your way through it and you work your way. More of an autopilot
0: you're... type of situation.
1: Yeah. I thought like, you know, nobody really loves their job. That's just that's just how society works. That's how we're, we're programmed, that we, we take this job and it's it's it pays the rents or it pays the mortgage and you you work your forty, fifty, whatever, sixty hours a week sometimes during the week, and then you have fun on the weekends, and then you take your two or three weeks off per year and you do something fun. And then you repeat every year until you turn 60 and you have enough money to retire then you start living your best life and that was that was the mentality that i was going under
0: yeah i think at this point because uh, so much has been put out about that now that there's a big awareness around that 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 is a path that you don't have to take which i think that that has come fairly recently when you look at the last century or so, or the industrial since the industrial revolution, let's say at some point you made this transition to running a hospice with your mom, which is an insane shift. I think to go from working in corporate America and everything you're describing to running a hospice. And and the part with your mom is curious. I'm curious about that because you, you said you grew up in Michigan with your father, your parents were split. Your mother was living in Colorado. I'm just wondering a little bit about your relationship with your mom and how that developed over the years and led to a business partnership. And then I want to get into the lessons learned from the hospice and everything.
1: But. Yeah. So I kind of had split my time growing up as a kid. So went to school, elementary, middle school, high school in Michigan, uh, just because that's where I grew up. My mom moved that's the Michigan
0: thing. You hold your hand up and you point to your hand. Raise right? your left hand or your right hand. Right
1: hand? there in the middle. So yeah. just just this little small rural agricultural town just south of Lansing, twenty minutes south. So if I told you the name, you'd never heard of it. It's, it's uh, I don't know because r- I was
0: it, I spent I spent a lot of time in Dewitt, Michigan, my friend. Come
1: on, you're <laughs> killing me, man.
0: A lot of time in Dewitt, Michigan, because that's where my ex grew up. So
1: yeah. Wow, I actually. Dated a girl right after high school from Dewitt, Michigan, and I lived in a small town, even smaller than Dewitt, called Eaton Rapids. So real small, 150 people in my class. You play euchre? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is a, this is an embarrassing admission. I don't play euchre, and I can't ice skate. So two things yeah. that I feel like I should have at least tisk, on lockdown. Tisk. I Jerry, know. Am I, it's like You can bike should,
0: through uh, India, but you can't play Euchre. No. I'm
1: someone right. should pull my Michigan card, right? Like right <laughs> there. Like I remember my friends in high school and even after that would always get together for Euchre. And I've never thrown a single, I think they're called, is it a trick? Or is it, uh, what's the terminology? I, I've, never, I've never thrown a, a single Euchre card in my life. So I have no, I don't even know how to how to play. I just know that it's uh, it's teams, right? So it's it's usually four people, and you and you have a, a team, and you and you lead with a certain thing. Yes, don't we know.
0: don't even need to get into it, we, unless we want to start a, a playing cards podcast. I don't think I'm going to do that today. But.
1: So so anyway, so I had spent I had spent a chunk of my time in Colorado during the holidays, so summer vacation, Christmas break, I would be in Colorado. And I ultimately knew once I graduated from high school in Michigan that I would end up in Colorado, which is what I did. So close with my mom, close with my dad. My dad is a Korean War veteran, so very, very strict. My mom is not a Korean War veteran, so much less strict. So very different household makeup growing up. And so I ended up moving to Colorado, going to Colorado for for university in Boulder, got the job that I talked about and. We'll go back to this soulless jobs. And then after probably 10 years, my mom was in Mexico uh, on vacation with her husband. And while it wasn't abnormal for her to call me because we were close, she called me from Mexico, which seemed odd, but of course I answered the phone. And before I could even say hello, she said, Jerry, I have an idea. I know what I want to do. I want to start a hospice in Boulder. At the time, I was probably 31, 32 bit cocky a bit sarcastic and so I said to her point blank like I I don't really want to start this makeshift hotel where people share dorm rooms with other travelers and she said what it's like no 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 that's that's a hostel I'm talking about a hospice and I thought what's a hospice And again, I'm 31, 32 years old. I I have no concept about end of life care, death and dying. I was on this, this, this roadmap, this, I was following this playbook to climbing the corporate ladder. And so this was nowhere near the periphery of my, of my interest, but she comes back from two weeks of, of vacation Again, she got her two weeks vacation for the year, and we started talking about a hospice. And me with my business uh, background and her with her wildly creative sense, we came together and a few months later opened a hospice in Boulder that we ran for 10 years together. And it was the single most important, impactful decision I've ever made in my life. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I know.
0: How did you feel getting into... That business as it was happening, like okay, yeah, you're just like I want to do something else, but it was your mom's thing. She was like, uh, "This is what I want to do. This is what we're going to do." Now, you know, it wasn't like the idea that you came up with necessarily. In that, this is what I want to do. Like, I know I want to do this with my life right now. You were just like, "All right, well, I'm I'm in for this," but that's a different perspective, obviously. So, and then you're going from the soulless jobs. How was it, kind of? For you, just getting in involved with that, like how did you feel? And and then we'll get into kind of what you learned in ten years running it, because obviously that that's a huge perspective shift for you.
1: Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. This this was her idea, this was her passion, this was her dream, and honestly, I was still kind of following my own playbook. I thought that I would just support her. And and helping her realize this dream as sort of an outside partner, I would come in, work nights, weekends, and do what needed to get done to help her along this path. But I never really, I never really thought that there was going to be my passion. And what happened? Did it turn into that? It did. Yeah. So we would we would obviously have patience of. Mostly of an advanced age, eighties, nineties. And I remember one of our first patients, she this will this will be a, a reference for you if you know Boulder. She lived in this little old homestead cabin that her father built up in Ward, which is just outside of, of of Boulder. Real small town, you know, couple thousand people at the most. Just um he had built this cabin for her. She had lived there her entire life, and I remember it was the winter time. And she was she was on oxygen. She had end stage COPD, congestive obstructive pulmonary disorder. She was probably ninety five pounds, including her oxygen tank. And she would still go outside and chop wood for her for her wood burning stove. And I, I, my father, my stepfather, and I, my also business partner, my mom's husband, we heard about this, and so we drove his truck up there through three feet of snow to get into her driveway and chop some wood for her and went up there several more times throughout the winter before she sadly ultimately passed away and just spent time with her listening to her tell stories about what boulder was like in the 1920s 30s 40s and it just captivated my soul like wow the stuff that we're doing it matters It gets having an impact on on people's lives. And in fact, that was one of our our first mottos around the office is that every day is an opportunity to impact someone's life. And I couldn't make that statement working for the Federal Reserve or for telecom. And so gradually, this this opportunity to connect with people started to really open up my heart in a way that I honestly, my business brain never thought possible. And so when I had the opportunity when the organization could afford another salary, I eventually transitioned away from my corporate job, which definitely wasn't my passion and, and didn't end that well either. I was able to join my my mom and her husband in this in this amazing organization and offer hospice care to people.
0: How long do people typically stay in a hospice before they pass on?
1: Great question. And so if you're looking at sort of the the Medicare definition of who qualifies for hospice, you have to have a life-limiting illness such that if the illness takes its normal timeline trajectory, that timeline is six months or less. And so that being said, we definitely had people, wasn't as common, who lived longer than six months we definitely had people who lived as short as six six hours, six days. But every once in a while, we would have people who we termed would graduate, who people who would, who would actually improve, which isn't common. But a lot of times, the people who graduated was because they received so much great care from the medical team. Because again, with hospice, you're sending in a nurse, to check on them, to titrate medications one, two, three times a week. There's a nurse's aide to help with with personal care needs, baths, preparing meals. There's social workers to help with psychosocial um, issues that people might be going through. And then we provide spiritual care and also volunteers to help just hang out with them. So you might have people who are living a more isolated life just because some of their family isn't living close or all their family had passed away and they're kind of alone. And then they get just this influx of care and treatment attention, and it has a really positive effect on them. And so when every time we would have someone who graduated, it was always a big celebration.
0: And then they would go on to, to live long, I guess, longer lives than they were expected to because they... they- Can't check in unless they're technically six months or less, which is... Yeah,
1: and so a doctor has to certify them, to qualify them based on on a physical assessment.
0: Probably really gives you a sense of the importance of connection and some of the things, like seeing people graduate from there and probably hard not to reflect on some of the reasons why somebody goes from months to live or less to all of a sudden leaving, walking out
1: it's an incredible transition. And again, like I I don't want to paint the picture that that was a normal, like it was less than 5% of of the, of the cases, but when it did happen, it's, it was obviously very exciting for the patients and, and, and for our staff as well. But the, the one thing that, that I learned from, from our, our clinical staff and, and to be clear, I'm not clinical. So my job was essentially to oversee anything, not clinical. So whether it was finance whether it was operations, whether it's human resources, that was, that was my role. But the great thing about the clinical staff in the hospice is that they have this thing that my mom would call the hospice hearts. And what that simply means is just, they have this amazing ability to just be present, to give, to give care and to take care of people that not everyone has. And so it's really amazing to see people interacting with patients at that level and the one thing that I was told, and I've learned from our clinical staff, is that humor is is critical. And humor is critical, and I think in, in everyone's life, but especially in this particular role, when you're caring for people at the end of their lives. And so it was it was great because you would see our staff go through very difficult places when 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 patients were nearing the end. But they would still be able to somehow find humor and find joy in the services that they were giving. And one of the, the, the statements that our staff would always make is that we're all terminal. Like we're, No one's getting out of here alive. Whether it's today, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, like we're all going to be here together. And so let's try to find the, the lighter aspect if possible.
0: I didn't expect to ask this question, but since you brought up humor is there a funny moment from running the hospice that stands out for the patient?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's two things that come to mind and they're, they're kind of dovetail together. And so I'll tell you sort of the backstory and then we'll get into the actual, the joke there. So, Couple years into running the hospice, I was maybe 34, 35 years old, and I was doing some amateur bike racing on the side. Again, nothing for money, just for fun. And it was the fall in Colorado, and it was—I it was, it was, was doing a race called cyclocross. And it was—it was rainy and it was cold. And I was came home from the race, and I was shivering. So I was gonna pull out this uh, sweet potato to 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 cook before I jump in the shower. And there's actually an interesting story in my book, and it's. The, the name of the chapter is The Sweet Potato That Changed My Life. And so how this went is normally a, a, com, a common thing to do would be to take a fork and to poke holes in this potato to aerate it so that it doesn't explode when you throw it in the microwave. For whatever reason, I chose a butter knife, which in hindsight, you know, 15 years later is idiotic. But so I'm poking down almost in a stabbing motion with this butter knife. And of course, my hands are slippery. And my hand slides down the handle of the butter knife and goes across the very not sharp edge of the blade. And it nicks my finger right above the first crease of my pinky. And so it's like, okay, I realize I'm probably going to need a stitch. So I go in to the emergency room that night. And the the doctor, or attending doctor says, hey, uh, yep, yeah, you need a stitch, but I'll see you tomorrow morning for surgery. And I said, what's that? Like, yeah, you cut a tendon. You're a young man. If you ever want to use your pinky finger again, you're going to need to have surgery. And so, in my very young myopic mentality, I I have surgery, and my hand is immobilized for the next eight weeks. And poor me, I I fall into this very melodramatic depression funk. I can't ride my bike. I can't brush my teeth in my right hand. I'm right hand dominant. I can't type on a computer. It's 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 immobilized, and my mom. She had seen this sort of progression happen over the previous weeks, me sort of wallowing into this trough of depression. And she comes in one day as I'm about to to run a meeting. And if you know my mom, one of her favorite expressions is, What is wrong with you? And we still joke about that today. That's one of her favorites. And she sees this funk in my face and she's been letting it go for a while. And finally she's like, You know, hey, what is wrong with you? And I was like, Oh, you know, poor me. I can't do this, this, and this. She's like, look around. You work in hospice. People are dying around you and you cut your finger, knock it off. And it was like this sort of this metaphoric slap across the face with like a a child who's having a tantrum and can't snap themselves out of it. And it was just like that, that I was just, holy crap, that is one of the best lessons learned from my hospice. But now to the joke. So this was, this would have been 2010 ish. And so from there, We went into this meeting with uh, the discussion of what is now a little more common practice is fecal transplants, and that's exactly what it is. It's taking feces from someone with a healthy gut biome and injecting them into the intestines of someone who has a compromised gut biome to help them fight off any kind of bacterial infections.
0: Wow, never knew that was a thing.
1: Yeah, it's become more common now but back in 2010 i mean think about like the the 30 something year old man who who really is just like an 8 year old who just got slapped by his mom cuz he was having a tantrum and walking into this meeting talking about poop transplants like yeah. it was just yeah. like it was like this perfect storm of like childhood <laughs> stories and mentality
0: yeah <laughs> and
1: you know the the i won't confirm or deny that there was a discussion of blenders and turkey basters in that discussion <sighs> yeah i know a little a little too deep but again this is the the hospice humor that you you kind of have to have and of course you know the nurses and the and our our medical director was you know, we were like yeah we think it's possible we can do this we've read studies about this and again you know it's it's 12 plus years later and it's 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 a more of a common practice but at the time like this was cutting-edge stuff
0: right just Make sure you don't use the smoothie blender. Right. For the right.
1: Your your Vitamix, yeah. I'm sure. Bigger. Right.
0: Yeah. That, that could be an issue. <laughs> and so it
1: has proven to be effective to help people build up good, healthy gut bacteria.
0: What were the big one or two lessons that you took away from running the hospice? I, I know you have the time bank. It sounds like that's a big uh, thing for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And since you brought that up, um, the, this, this idea of a time bank, I didn't come across this quote until, until towards the end of it. And I, it was a quote that I read somewhere and I'm not even sure if it came from somebody famous or if it's just an internet meme, but it, it, I'll paraphrase and it kind of goes something like this. Every person has a time bank in every day, 86,400 seconds are deposited into that time bank. No one will tell you how to use that time and time misspent won't be refunded. At some point, whether it's five days, five years, 50 years, some point down the road, you're going to go to that time bank and you're going to find that it's empty. And it's at this point, you'll know the answer to this question. Did I use my time well? And so that was a really big lesson learned from running a hospice because it was easy to talk about the the sweet woman in ward who had was 95 and died of COPD i could make i could make sense of it in my mind by saying that she was 95 she probably lived a really good fruitful and and colorful life and she was happy but it wasn't until i had a friend who died at age 45 of breast cancer that I realized that there's this concept of this time bank and tomorrow isn't promised. So if you're, again, sitting around trying to work your butt off until you're 60, 65 and put in your time until then, and you can retire and then start living your best life, you may not get that opportunity. And so that was probably my, my most important impactful lesson from the hospice is that time is finite, and tomorrow's not promised.
0: We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been, and they are under 50 bucks So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. There are a lot of ways to live your life, of course, but for you, that meant getting out and traveling and seeing the world? Was that kind of the foundation for the next chapter of your life after you, you guys sold, sounds like you sold the hospice. I'm sure you got some money from that and everything. And
1: yeah, so my mom had turned 70 and wanted to retire. And again, within like probably a a three month period, we decided to step away from the hospice. Uh, A friend of mine again, died of breast cancer. And the, the woman who I had met, who I was living with, who I was supposed to grow old with, who was part of this, this playbook, her and I realized that we weren't long-term partners. And so I had sort of these, these three things happen within a three-month period. And I had never not worked in a, in a job, in a career, 50, 60 hours a week. And so I was now given this, maybe the time very unwanted, but still a gift. I was given this gift of time. And so I... Had had done some, some bike touring on a, on a small scale one or two weeks at a time. But now I had this sort of open-ended opportunity. And you brought up the point like, yes, we did sell the hospital, but it w- we didn't sell it to Google or to Apple. So it wasn't like I'm I'm retired, but it, it did allow me to take some time off. And so I went and visited a friend who was living in, in Africa, who I went to high school with. Uh, he had reached out to me. And from there, I met somebody who said, you should go to Zimbabwe. From Zimbabwe, I met someone who said, you should go to Botswana and then Madagascar. And then, okay, that was cool. And so I planned this trip over probably a month. And as I was coming back from Madagascar, I met this woman from India in the airport. And I was telling her my stories. And she said, "If, if you really like adventure, then you should go to India because the Himalayas will be just... Just what you're looking for, and so I thought, "Wow, you're right. Maybe, maybe this is what I need." And so I started traveling by this mentality to to always say yes. So every time a door opens, I took a step through. It's so easy for me as this Type A control freak to say no to note everything because no gives us this semblance of of control, some autonomy. But to say yes to things, it opens you up to possibilities that you don't really know what's going to happen. And the more I started to say yes to things, the more doors open, and more these opportunities started to occur. And so from from Madagascar, I went to India and I planned to only be in India. I planned a route from Northern India in the Ladakh region where I was just recently at in October into Nepal, a period of about, let's say probably six weeks maybe two months. And so I get to, to Nepal and I pretty much had been gone for three months now. And I was ready to come home because three months by Western standards, by American standards is a long time because people get two or three weeks off per year. And I had taken three months off. And so I'm getting ready to fly back. I'm in Kathmandu. And if you haven't been to Kathmandu, it is this wildly beautiful, full of life, chaotic, incredible city. And so I, I, I meet this Swiss couple and we end up having dinner together and we're comparing stories and sharing experiences. And I tell them where that I'd been and they told me where they had been. And so Ibo, the husband, turns to me and he says, hey, so what are you doing next week? And I said, well, you know, I've been I've been gone for for two, almost three months now. I'm probably going to head back to Boulder. And he looked at me and he says, we've been gone for two years. And I thought, what? How in the world? financially physically mentally how can you just be on your bike for two years and so he asked me again he's like so why are you going back besides you've only been gone for two almost three months i said i don't understand your question and he turns to me again and he says are you married no do you have a job no kids no do you have a dog no no Okay, let me ask you again, why are you going back to Colorado? And I said, I don't know. What did you have in mind? We're going to keep cycling through eastern Nepal into northeast India, Darjeeling, Sikkim, Arunachal Pradesh, all these places, and then maybe make our way into China and eastern Tibet. Do you want to come? And I thought to myself, well, this might be the craziest thing that I've ever thought of. I've known you for at least an hour and a half now. So what's the worst that could happen, Right. But I said to myself, if I really believe this mindset that I'm traveling with this this approach to always say yes, then the only answer is to say yes and go with them. And I thought, well, either we don't get along, we don't travel at the same speed, maybe doesn't find my jokes funny, whatever. We we split off and we ride our bikes in different directions. Or I just come home like I had planned. But we ended up being together pretty much 24-7... Camping together, sharing hotel rooms together, he and his wife and me, the third wheel uh, all the way from probably December into June, so six months and it was incredible, and we 're still terrific friends right now they're they 're back in Switzerland, so
0: I love that story. I love thinking about a couple that will meet somebody, change their life, and have them you know just invite them along onto their sort of a couple's journey and from your perspective just saying yes to somebody that you you only just met and and deciding to basically just not go home and having them talk you out of it after knowing each other for an hour and a half that's that's the power of travel I guess it is man <laughs> like
1: if you just open up your mind open up your heart and just kind of throw caution to the wind and and go with it like amazing things happen but i'm also thinking that you
0: have this foundation of this this 10 years of experience being around dying people that's just there in the background all the time i would imagine i mean i'm not going to speak for you you have to tell me but like in some ways maybe that does that make it easier to say yes and kind of push things forward and take take a risk because you've you've been face to face we all know we're going to die and we all know people die every day but we're not necessarily around it and seeing it every day
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, It definitely gave me a a serious perspective shift. Again, if this was old corporate Jerry working in a cubicle, putting in my time and just banking the time until I turned 60 or 65 to retire, yeah, my mindset would have been significantly altered. But because I had that experience, that opportunity, that gift to work in hospice, it, it definitely changed my outlook knowing that if i don't do this, am, am I going to regret this opportunity being lost and it, it made it a lot easier to just go with the flow but mind you, I, I still had this this type A mentality I'd like to say I'm probably an a minus now, so I'm definitely have relaxed a fair bit but I, i'm still I'm very competitive I still like things a certain way but I, i'm i'm much more open to, to rolling with things and, and trying different ideas that aren't necessarily my idea. So that, that did give me the opportunity to, to travel with these guys, because I also knew that what's the worst that could happen. I mean, if, if we, again, if we don't get along, we travel different speeds, I'll just peel off. I'm mean, because I've been traveling solo for, for two months anyway. So I, I knew I was comfortable, you know, and this kind of goes back to your question, someone who's new at bike touring, like, I've been doing it for long enough that I felt secure enough that I could go my own way. If things didn't work out the way I'd hoped.
0: And now you have a lot of your stories collected in your book, the world spins by a gift of time, love and the long bike ride back to myself. Why is it a bike ride? Why was it a bike ride back to yourself?
1: I just felt like, and again, people, people have things happen to them. Everyone has life happen to them at some point that knocks them off their access, that ungrounds them, that maybe detracts from their original path, original goal that they had set for themselves. And and with that, those three, a series of three events that happened to me within probably a three month period, I just felt like I had lost a bit of who I was. The, the hospice had been my identity. I had had this identity as a couple. And those two things just kind of went away. And I just felt, I felt a bit lost and I won't. I won't say I had a midlife crisis, but I was probably 41, 42 when this all went down. And after having this this plan that I had figured out, and then it all changed. And we we all think that we can control things, that we have some sort of grip, and we can inf- we can influence things. And it was hard for me being this type A control freak. I thought that I could fix everything. And then you you get to this mindset, you start. Thinking about could I have done something different? Could I have affected the outcome? And, and honestly, the answer is no. The, it was gonna happen the way it happened. There's nothing I could have said or done with either the hospice, with my friend dying, with the breakup of my romantic partner. Like those things were just gonna happen. And so I felt like this every pedal stroke I took was helping me process this grief that was that was just weighing so heavy on my soul. And every pedal stroke was just this pedaling back to myself, to the person that I had always thought I was, and becoming more normal, more healed. And so that was sort of the the mentality of that terminology: pedaling back to myself.
0: Is there a difference between bike packing and bike touring?
1: Uh, I've had that discussion with people recently, and. Probably not, but I look at them in a different way and whether I'm right or wrong, I'm not the, 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 the authority on this, but I always look at bike touring as kind of going from place to place. I look at it as going from city to city, country to country. And I think of bike packing as more kind of like backpacking with a, except with a bike. Whereas like a wilderness medieval, adventure. Yeah, like just yeah. kind of going off into the into the into the woods for a while, maybe it's a couple of days, but it's not really about trying to get from point to point. And again, this is a story I'm telling myself. I, I, I don't make the definitions, but that's how I kind of view things. Because I do some bike packing in Colorado, but again, it's kind of into the canyons, into some of the mountains, and I'll go for a couple of nights then I'll return home. Whereas bike touring, I'm going from India to Nepal to Thailand to China to Kyrgyzstan hopping over to Morocco maybe Israel and that's been the extent of my bike touring
0: share a couple highlights in terms of destinations for let's say beginner somebody that's maybe new to travel by bike and then one or two for somebody that's maybe intermediate to more advanced or just willing to take on the the extra adventure
1: let's (laughs) say so I, I will say that the one takeaway that I've had from all of my travels is that people really are just people you can look at the news you can read the news and you can see wow that country looks crazy there's chaos over there i can almost guarantee at least from my experience all the countries that i've been to that people are just people and one of my favorite experiences was when i was in israel And Israel is a beautiful country, very kind people. And I know that everyone looks on the news and sees all the chaos and the unrest and the bombings. I can say unequivocally, that was not my experience. And so there is a Facebook group called Bikepacking Israel. And I had joined that when I went there. And I just put a post on and said, hi, I'm Jerry. I'm going to be traveling in this region. If anyone wants to connect to get dinner or a tea or something, I would love to, to hear from you or just to tell me things I should or should not miss along the way. And so I'm up along the border, along the Lebanon border. I am close enough that I can actually physically touch the border wall. And so being in America, we don't have this mindset of having of having border enemies, but Lebanon and Israel aren't friendly. There was a border wall there. And I remember I'd been biking for probably three or four days. I, I pull into this, this coffee shop in this little small village of Matula. And all along the road, there are armored up Humvees racing down, patrolling the border. There's people in, in camouflage fatigues, carrying machine guns. And initially I would think like, this is really terrifying. But again, everyone looks at it because it's so. It's so normal. It's it's no big deal. It would seeing somebody carrying a machine gun in Israel is seemingly no more crazy than seeing somebody carrying a briefcase in the United States, which was this am- amazing shift in my mindset. So, anyways, I, I walk into this this coffee shop and I try to get some uh, some some water because it's hot and it's dry. And the guy behind the counter looks at me and he kind of cocks his head sideways and he says, "Hey, are you Jerry?" I say, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, and I'm looking around for the cameras. Like, what kind of a ruse is this?" And he says, "Hold on a second." So he goes into his pocket, takes out a cell phone, dials a number, and hands me the phone. The voice on the other end says, "Hello, is this Jerry?" And I said, "Yeah, it's Jerry." It's like, "Hey, do you need a place to sleep tonight?" And I said, "I do. Is there a place I can camp because it's a military zone and there's just there's no place to camp?" The, the military, How would they even
0: know you're coming through there? I don't know. Or you're going to stop. By that cafe, like somebody just come
1: in and say, Hey, if a guy named Jerry stops by, right? Have him give me a call. (laughs) And honestly, like I've, you know, I've got fair skin, I've got a bald head, I don't look too different to a lot of people who live in Israel. So it doesn't like I just am blaring American, but maybe I was, I don't know. And so he says, You know, do you need to play asleep? I said, Yeah, is there a place to camp? He says, No. Give me your phone number. I'm going to drop a pin on your phone. Follow it. That'll take you to my house. You'll meet my neighbor out front. I'm not home. I'll be back in a week or so. Stay as long as you'd like. If you're there when I'm when you're there when I'm back, awesome. If not, safe travels. And by the way, do you need the Wi-Fi password? And of course, I'm just absolutely blown away because I have this mindset that I'm near a border contentious area and Israel is this chaotic, dangerous place. And here I am, some guy who I've never met, will never meet, just offer me his house for as long as I want to stay.
0: That's, that's some next level hospitality there.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, think about, think about that. If you're in the United States or wherever you are and you see somebody roll through who looks different than you is. Why don't you go down
0: to the Denver airport and do the same thing? Just bring your apartment keys
1: and say, Hey, by the way, you guys need a place to sleep." Like in what world would we do that? And it was, it was so second nature. He's like, yeah, you need a place to sleep. I got you. And before that, I would never have considered doing that with anybody. And now I've been doing that, honestly, quite a bit during the summer. So people roll through Breckenridge and they're on a bike tour, either through the, the, the Great Divide route or the Colorado Trail. And we'll, my partner and I will ask them if they need a place to sleep. And It's really
0: nice when you can be based somewhere and return that favor.
1: To- yeah, yeah. And I've met some of the most amazing people that way. And honestly, I've been offered a, a place to sleep or someone has bought me a tea or a lunch countless times in all the countries I've been through. And it's it's so amazing to realize that there's this innate underlying human connection, this, this human experience that that drives people, that drives people to, to make connections and I think it's, it's so easy to, again, to be fearful and to sequester ourselves away and lock ourselves away from connection. But honestly, I just I believe that people are just are wired for connection. And I, I probably stole that from Brene Brown, but she's got a good point. So <laughs> anyways, that was probably one of my favorite human experience stories. And that was in a place that I expected the least of that hospitality in Israel. So you talk about places that are maybe more approachable. Again, I, I was in Spain and was able to cycle just from from hotel to hotel, which was great. To places mo- way more remote, like being on the Tibetan plateau in China, where you didn't see anybody for three, four, five days in a row, and the people you would see would be just nomads who are who are moving around through the plateau throughout the season. And so it's it's definitely it's it takes a bit of confidence to know that you have enough food, you can get water, you can take care of yourself because again, you may not see another person for three, four five days, sometimes even longer.
0: What's your best advice for planning those types of trips? So you have resources or, you know, places where you're going to go and you might not, you know, not sure we might get water and things like that.
1: Yeah. The, the water is obviously the thing that you have to plan the most. So I've, I've bike toured through Israel and through the Negev Desert in the south, down towards Jordan, water is is a very real concern. And so you need to know where your stopping points are. So that's not something you can just wander out your front door and figure out. Like you need to know, are there water stops, and how much water do I need to take with me? Where so, do you find
0: that information?
1: Ah, uh, you can look on maps. You can see if there's water place, there's water stops, whether there's a river, whether there's a reservoir. Uh, blogs, people like, so when I started bike touring 15 years ago, they didn't have this abundance of information. They didn't have all these websites and people blogging about it. And you know, people like me writing books about it. It was just kind of, you go out there and you just over-prepare and then go with the flow. Meaning you'll carry twice as much food and water as you need until you feel, okay, this is adequate. And you sort of just figure it out as you go. But now there's 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 blogs everywhere, and if there's a place that you can dream of going, someone's probably been there or at least somewhere near that can give you some sort of tips. So, for example, that brings up a really good memory I have when we were in we were in India just this uh, two months ago, and we had planned out a route that we thought was was going to be a good route, but then after a while, we realized that we were kind of on a, a more busy road that really wasn't entertaining. It was actually kind of terrifying. So we made this turn and got off this road and stopped in a small village. And over lunch, my partner and I both pulled out our phones and we're looking at an offline GPS map. And we saw that this little small faint road that was barely a road actually went to the same place that we were going. It took three days longer, but it was a much less terrifying experience. But the road on our map didn't quite connect all the way there was a break in it and i had speculated that this road would connect so i started going on the internet and i found a blog about some guy from india who had cycled this road the the week before or the sorry the the year before but before i read that i was talking to people in in the restaurant who had served us lunch i said hey does this does this road connect and they all said no not possible there's no road there so i thought hmm okay So I reached out to this guy. He actually, for whatever reason, had his phone number listed on his blog. And so I called him and the guy answered the phone. And so how many times has a foreign number, like a foreign number, not like a number, not on your phone, but from a different country called and he's like, yeah, I'm going to answer the phone. This guy answered the phone and say, yeah, I cycled this in pretty decent English and it's totally good. You should do it. And so that was just this amazing experience about being open to, to change, open to possibility and just Mm -hmm. helping people when you can.
0: Love it. What are you up to now? I mean, is this your full-time thing or I I guess my, my question is how are you balancing nowadays travel and having experiences with the need to work, financial stability? Great question. That sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, I definitely do not work in a corporate environment anymore. I've spent a lot of time on this book, and I'm trying to make my my story and speaking more of an income-generating opportunity. Not because I, I want to make this my career per se, but from a different perspective. I, I really have enjoyed telling my story and seeing people maybe have a little mental shift in the way they approach things that if I can affect even a couple people with a different perspective, I think that's really gratifying. But I also have become a ski instructor. So I teach Nordic skiing throughout the season uh, in winter in Breckenridge. In the summer, I guide bike tours. And I also do some some financial work for an organization, a a nonprofit bikepacking organization called Warm Showers. So I have, I have a couple of things that I piece together that. Yeah, while I, I don't make anywhere near as amount of money, I make enough. And fortunately, I've always said I'm a terrible consumer. I just I don't, I don't buy things. And so I'm able to get by with a lot less. And maybe that's because I lived on a bike for the better part of almost two years. It was interesting. I came back from that trip and I realized that I don't need all these things. I don't need three Gore-Tex jackets, two down coats. Like When I was living on my bike, I had, this will sound weird, I had one pair of underwear. I had two pair of socks. I had one cycling kit, Gore-Tex jacket, Gore-Tex pants, puffy coat, and that was it. And I realized that I don't really need a lot of things. The things that really drive me are experiences. They're, They're relationships. It's not stuff. So I don't need the new Audi every two or three years. I don't need the big house. Like These things just, they don't drive me. And so I can afford to maybe take less on a paycheck to have more internal satisfaction and fulfillment and and happiness in my life.
0: And maybe one more pair of underwear? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <Just one more? laughs> so I, I do own more at home, but one is adequate when I'm traveling. Is one think, enough? You, I guess you take it off and you wash it, air it out. And well, here's the thing, right? So you're, you're, you're riding all day, five, six, eight hours a day, and you're in your, your spandex, your, your, your bicycle kit, right? And then you find either a hotel, someone's home to stay in or a river or a lake and you bathe. And then so you're clean and you put on your underwear, you eat dinner and you go to sleep and you do it again tomorrow. And so it doesn't really get too, too dirty, but the, uh, the, 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 cycling kit definitely gets dirty. So, I mean, there were times when my, uh, my top and my bottom, they'd be so sweaty and so dirty from five, six days in a row that they would almost stand up by themselves, which once you get sort of past the, the mental block of like, seeing this thing is really gross. Once you put it on and you're riding again, like, yeah, it feels the same. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well,
0: I appreciate your time coming on here. I mean, like the Indian woman you met who said, hey, you should come to India or the Swiss couple who, you know, invited you on their journey. Perhaps your story today, somebody's listening and then they're hearing something that's going, hey, wait a minute, biking or hey, you never know. If you if you're listening and then this hits you in some way you can always reach out and let us know or get in touch with uh Jerry directly and of course we'll link up to your website and the book and all that good stuff on on the show notes here. Yeah, do you have any other sort of parting uh, words to share?
1: Yeah, I I know that you you talk about travel so much and I think it's such it's such a vital thing that people should do if if they can. What it does, and you know this too, from living in another country and traveling as well, is that it allows us to see the world through different people's eyes, through a different lens. And it lets us know that we're not all that different. People are really just people. And we all have our own struggles, our own challenges, our own goals and aspirations. And traveling really opens us up to those possibilities. So if you can travel, go, it'll change your life. Love it. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Jason. you know I live I in
0: uh, you know I live in Norway. We got some Nordic skiing over here, so let, you know let me know if you make it over.
1: It's uh, it's been on my my hot list for a while, so yeah. I know that you guys have those things called fjords, right?
0: Yeah, we got a few of those.
1: <laughs> <laughs> would love to catch up with you face to face sometime. That would be wonderful, and good luck on everything you got
0: going on with the book, and congratulations—no small feat—to write a book and keep on trucking.
1: keep on cycling (laughs) yeah man take care thank you
0: there you have it i want to say thanks once again to jerry for stopping by the show sharing his story of course the book the world spins by a gift of time love and the long bike ride back to myself congratulations on that we'll link up to all of it in the show notes and is there a bigger question to consider then, am I using my time well? Sometimes we have to just look right in front of us and think about the small steps and, and those smaller questions, I would say, that get us towards our goals. But it's quite important to take a step back and consider those bigger questions and use those as a compass to guide us with the smaller goals along the way. And this question of time... Or should I say how much time you have left? There's no bigger one than that. Would you like to know your death date, the day that you're going to die? I think about the people that Jerry was interacting with in the hospice having some idea from uh, medical professionals of how long you have left to live. I can't imagine being in that scenario. I have no idea what I would do, how I would react But I often use that as a thought experiment to think, well, if I did just have a year left, what would I do with it? And of course, this is the balance between kind of prioritizing the things that are most important to us, but also making sure you can pay your bills and all the practical things that are part of life. But I do think it's a useful thought experiment to consider the time limit. And one way to do this, it might not be exact, but it gives you something to work with is to check out the death clock. Yes, this is a website called death-clock.org where they have, quote, been predicting the demise of others since 2006. (laughs) I love that. They have over 34 million death predictions and counting. So anyway, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also it gives you a calculation of how long you will live based on your height, your weight, your lifestyle, and so forth. So it's a just a rough estimate, of course, but it's something to work with. So if you want to spend a minute or less today to calculate the day you are going to die, how many days you have left, hours, minutes, seconds, there's even a, a continuing countdown when you do it, which is super motivating, <laughs> I find. You can go to that website and do that. and you know, do it for fun. I mean, I know it sounds kind of weird to say, Go calculate your death day for fun. But it serves as a very important reminder that we all aren't going to live forever. And then as you go about the rest of your day, you can ponder that question. Am I using my time well? If that is too big, perhaps you just ponder the question. Hey, if I had, you know, not that much time left, what would I do with the next year of my life? Is the next year either putting me on the path towards the things I want to do or am I doing the things I want to do and how can I incorporate more of the things I want to do all those type of things that you know with your own internal innate wisdom the things that fulfill you so think about those and try to match those up and just ponder that question of time because we don't have forever and we all know that but We don't think about it every day. So here you go. I'm giving you a little public service reminder that we can all think about that today and let that inform some of the decisions we're making right now. I think that's helpful. So there you go. Enjoy calculating your death. (laughs) I do want to give a shout out to somebody in this community who sounds like she's been using her time very well. Hannah, congratulations. She wrote an email, said, hi, Jason. My name is Hannah. I've been listening to the podcast for about two years now. I wanted to reach out, and say thanks for your work. It's been a lifeline over the past couple of years. I've always known travel was going to be a large part of my life, but found it out of reach when I hoped to leave after I graduated college in 2021. I've been diagnosed with PTSD in 2019 and was not well enough at the time to leave my support system. I also had no money as a college graduate. That led me to get a job in Birmingham where I went to college, listening to your podcast at work while addressing my health issues and saving up money. Help me get through the past two years. I am happy to say I'm leaving this fall to travel in Central America for the next year and a half, starting in Guatemala at a language school. Thank you again, Hannah. So I wanted to just publicly here acknowledge Hannah, say congratulations, battling through health issues and saving money as a post-grad and making this dream a reality. Her commitment to travel is finally paying off. So just wanted to give a shout out there and say thanks if you have a story to share you can always leave me a voicemail, drop me an email, jason at zero to travel.com. Please get in touch. Would absolutely love to hear from you, love to hear from listeners. Okay, last thing this short bike hack. I was in Oslo the other day exploring and used the city bike system, which was super handy. You just downloaded an app, they have these city bikes that are locked up all over the city. It's been a while since I've used them, but you know, every city bike program is different. And it's just a reminder that, hey, this is a great way to explore a city. I found a Wikipedia page that has a list of all of the bicycle sharing systems. And as of now, there are roughly 1,000 cities worldwide that have bike sharing programs. So don't forget, when you hit the road, take advantage of those bike sharing programs. Those aren't just for locals. They make them quite easy to use for tourists. And it's a great way to just get around and explore and see a city so don't forget about that on your next trip and you can always double check and see if a city has a bike sharing system or if you see them around don't be afraid to dive in and just give it a go because it's a a wonderful offering out there for travelers and you don't have to travel with your own bike you don't have to maintain it but you get to have that biking around experience so i will leave you with that and a quote on time to wrap this up This one is from Brian Tracy, who said, There's never enough time to do everything, but there is always enough time to do the most important. thing." Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.